Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, we are gathered here this evening because we have the privilege of opening this, thy book. And we pray and we ask, Heavenly Father, as we read from it, this holy scripture, thy spirit will visit us, O Lord, and move among our hearts, speaking to us that thing which each of us might need. Lord, we look to thee and not to man for inspiration and for edification, for strength, for knowledge, for wisdom, for all that we need. We pray, dear Lord, that thou wouldst glorify thyself through thy servant this evening. We also want to remember that there is another sermon taking place to our teenagers. Bless the brothers who share there that it might be effective as well. We commit ourselves to thy care and keeping in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Loved ones, it's a blessing to be here together with you this week. We are thankful to the Lord that he continues to open the doors year after year for so many to gather from so, from so many places that we can spend time together in God's word, meditating on what the Lord has for each and every one of us. And if I might have the opportunity just for a moment to say that I'd like to put in a request, and I'm not sure who I should put it into, but I do hope that before the weekend's over, we might hear from whoever the artist was about the meaning in the banner above me. I think there seems to be a lot of thought that was put into that, and I hope that before the weekend's over, we'll find some, at some point in time, we'll learn about it, what was going into that, uh, into the thoughts of that banner. What I have before me is the Old Testament. I'd like to ask you to turn, read with me from the fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 27. I would like, with the help of the Lord, to read a few verses from Deuteronomy chapter 27. And Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones and plaster them with plaster. And thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law when thou art passed over that thou mayest go in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Therefore, it shall be when ye be gone over Jordan that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. And there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones, thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones, and thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God, and thou shalt offer peace offerings, and shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. 
And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And Moses and the priests and the Levites spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, and Asher, and Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levite shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Curse be the man that maketh any graven or molten image an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger, fatherless, and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife, because he uncovereth his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with any manner of beast, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that smiteth his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that conformeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Joshua chapter 8. Look at that for a moment. Or two. Joshua chapter 8. We can look at verse number 30. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel on Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lift up any iron, and they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote thereon, thereupon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side the ark and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord as well as the stranger as he that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel." And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel, 
with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. I have to admit that this passage here and this incident that we have read about has fascinated me over the past several weeks. It's something that I have heard about before, but I never really took much time to look into. And in recent days, I had been trying to read and understand what exactly was taking place in what must have been a very impressive ceremony. It was surprising to me to first to learn and to realize that I could find very little description in the, in the Bible about this incident that took place, about this event, except for that which we have read. And yet it somehow lays in my heart this, this evening that the things that we have read here, though they were so important and central to the ancient nation of Israel, yet there are lessons within this that we might be able to bring forward with the help of the Lord for ourselves as well, for this assembly this evening. And that's my hope, that's my prayer, that as we would take the time to meditate on what has taken place here and try to understand some of the meaning of it, that God might be able to bless it to our hearts, saved and unsaved, that this is my prayer truly tonight. We read here in Deuteronomy, that last book of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, the retelling of the law. We take a step back, we will recall that Moses, the life of Moses was divided providentially into three chapters of 40 years each. The first 40 years growing up as a prince in the house of Egypt. The second 40 years as a shepherd there in the wilderness in Midian. And then those, it seems that those two chapters prepared him, God was preparing him during, during those first 80 years of his life for what would be the most important chapter, that he might be a shepherd to bring Israel out of bondage into the land that was promised by God. Moses, that great man of God who was so esteemed and looked up to by faithful Israel to this day. And it was when he had delivered Israel, as God had delivered Israel, but through the hand of Moses and brought him through the Red Sea, brought him into the wilderness and to the foot of Mount Sinai, that God had called Moses up to the mountain, that God could speak to Moses and deliver to him the law. This that we call the law of Moses, which is actually God's law given through the hand of Moses. And God delivered to Moses all the words that we can read in Exodus and Leviticus and so on and so forth. Many regulations and, and um, many details were included describing for them how they were to not only function as a nation, but how they were to worship their God and how they were to survive and exist as this chosen people of God. And after that, after leaving Sinai and wandering for the 40 years in the desert, you know the story as well as I do, the account in the scripture, we come now to the last days in the life of this man of God called Moses. And Deuteronomy are, in a sense, the last words of Moses as the Spirit of God is upon him and he is retelling the law. And why would he retell the law? Had he not spoken at once? Had it not yet been delivered? Did they not yet 
already engrave it in stone and so forth, copy it out and, and etc. They had. But it seems that as they were now at this point in their existence as a nation, God saw it fit that this generation, this new generation, needed to hear the law again and needed to hear it, as it were, from Moses' mouth. So they could not later on uh, find any accusation against Joshua or somebody who would follow, but they heard it as well. And so God saw that to help establish a nation as they were on the brink of going into the promised land, that they would repeat the law all over again. And so we had the book of Deuteronomy. But then we come across this, um, I don't know if I should call it a ceremony, the best word I can think of at the moment is event that took place as the, as the covenant was renewed, if you will. Moses, at 120 years of age, knew that God would not permit him to cross Jordan. And yet God had showed Moses some places that, would, that exist on the other side of Jordan. It, it, it's, I find it so fascinating that Moses these mountains here that he described probably never saw them in his lifetime. And yet, God had showed to him that at a certain location there across Jordan, they were to do something when they got there. And so as you read the scripture, they, Moses gave these very specific instructions to Joshua and to the people of Israel what they were going to do once they crossed over the river. And cross over the river they did. And there was a battle at Jericho. There was the, the, the um, calamity at Ai until that was reversed because they humbled themselves before God. And God gave them victory the second time around there at that town. But as you go through Joshua, we come to this point where uh, we read of this event that, that we have, again, just looked at. And, and as we, it's, this is what I understand from it. I, I, I have to admit, again, uh, some of this is still a little bit puzzling to me, but as I look at these words, as we look at these words together, God had, Moses had instructed Joshua to be sure that they came to the, the village or the town of Shechem. Now, this was of historic significance to the people of Israel because this was the place that Abraham first came to when he came down from the Ur of the Chaldees into the land that God had told him of. And so as he came to Shechem, this was the first place that Abraham was at. And later on, we can read of Jacob and uh, some of the things he did there to prepare the people of God before they would go on to Bethel as he had the people strip themselves of their jewelry and of their idols. And he buried their jewelries and their idol, their idols there beneath a great oak tree in Shechem. And so when God told Moses to tell Joshua to go to Shechem, this was a place that had significance to the nation of Israel. Now, I've never been there, of course. Uh, maybe one day it might be my, my privilege to go, but it's my understanding from what I read and what images I can take a look at online that this is almost could be described as a mountain pass, this uh, Shechem, because it is between two uh, mountains that rise up and they stand quite tall from the valley floor, but at the foot of the mountains between Ebal on the north and Gerizim on the south, there is perhaps 300, 500 yards, the figures I've read vary. But it's a short, a relatively short distance to gather a nation. 
And the, um, the interesting thing, this is just as a side note, is that um, I, I read of some a British, uh, I don't know if sure if they're explorers and missionaries who went there in the 1800s, and when they came to the, vill- the place of Shechem, which now has another name there in the West Bank of Israel, when they came there, they, they remembered this passage and they wanted to do a sound test. And so they, they put uh, a, a few men up on one side of the mountain, a few men up on the other side of the mountain, and they had a man standing there in the middle with his Bible open, and he started reading aloud and it seems like that, that setting there is somewhat of a nat- natural amphitheater because when a man speaks in that location, you could not repeat this uh, experiment today with all the urbanization and so forth, but in the 1800s, they recorded in their journals or their uh, travels that as a man spoke there reading the scripture in the center there, in the valley between these mountains, the people on the mountains could understand what he was saying fascinating. But what took place there on that day only occurred one time, and I'm not referring to the 1800s now, but what we read in Joshua chapter 8. Joshua assembled the nation. The Ark of the Covenant was there in the center, the the valley floor. There were six tribes that were told to go up uh, some, some part up the mountain on the north, Ebal which some have described as a barren mountain. Then there were the other six tribes told to go up the other side, Mount Gerizim, which some have described at some point in time in the past, I imagine things are changed today, as being filled with vegetation, the Mount of Blessing. You had the, the mountain where, where cursings were going to be, the curses of the law were going to be announced to the people of Israel. And then the other mountain would be representative of where the blessings were going to be directed. It wasn't that God was blessing and cursing certain tribes of Israel. Rather, it was that God was explaining and pronouncing the blessings and the curses that will fall upon those who either obey his covenant or who disobey. And so just imagine with me what this scene must have looked like. This is why it almost frustrates me a bit. I wish I could read some more in the scripture about what that day must have been like because evidently it was never to be repeated again. But there it was, the day had come and and Joshua was there with the Levites and, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. And by the tens of thousands, you have the men of Israel lined there some way up Mount Ebal. And you have the opposite scene there on Mount Gerizim to the south of Shechem. And they are commanded to be silent. And as silence settles over the multitude, literally over a nation, the Levites and Joshua begin to say with a loud voice, they turn to Mount Gerizim and they announce the blessings for keeping the law. And when they announce the blessings one after another, the people on the mountain shout back, Amen. And then they need to turn and he turns, they turn and they face Mount Ebal and they announce all the, bless, all the curses that will come upon those that refuse to obey. And the people cry out, Amen. And what was happening that day? 
It's almost as if they were putting their signature to the covenant that God had made with them. First at Sinai, renewed over there in the days, the last days of Moses on the other side, Jordan. And now, in a sense, finally ratified as a nation is now in the land promised to them. And they are committing themselves and, and they, are, they are crying out amen to the blessings, amen to the curses, showing that they have without any condition committed themselves to what God has provided for them. I just find this overwhelming. I, I, just, I can only imagine and picture what this must have been like. I suspect that it was an event that the people that were there, because the Bible says it was not just the men of Israel, it was the men and the women, their wives and, and their little ones as well. I suspect that it was a sight never to be forgotten as long as they lived. God had favored them in such a way to allow them wit to witness such, a, such an event. And how sobering it must have been for them when the nation, when, six, when half of the nation with one voice would say amen to the blessings. And equally important, the other half of the nation would echo back, amen to the cursings. Loved ones, let's think about this for a moment. We see the setting. We try to understand a bit of the, of the meaning of, of this that had taken place there that day so, so long ago, never to be repeated. And we can, again, I can, maybe someone else can help me find something else in the scripture you know about that I don't know about. But I can find very little about this event, except for what we read. And so the Bible says that this event took place, Joshua chapter 8. The law was written down there, engraved in stone and plaster. Down there on Mount Ebal, there was a, an altar made where sacrifices were to be offered first to God. Interesting, the altar was on the Mount of Curse, Curses, perhaps foreshadowing that Christ would offer himself up as the ultimate sin offering to remove the curse that we have been under. Even so, it strikes me that this took place but one time in the nation, in the history of the nation of Israel. And so I would think that through the years to come and through the generations to come, the blessings and the cursings of the law would continue to echo down over the years into the hearts and minds of Israel. They were expected to remember what they as a nation had committed themselves to on that day when they became God's nation. It's just fascinating to me. And I, and I think as I look at this this. Uh, tremendous event that took place. I think there are lessons that we can draw from it and pull forward here into the 21st century. And I'd like to share with you just a few thoughts of some of the things that come to my heart as I think of what we have just read and discussed briefly about. First, I would like to address some comments to those who are not in the covenant of Jesus Christ. Perhaps first and foremost, my heart turns to you and, and I really think that um, if you have not entered into this covenant relationship 
that Christ has established with his own blood to come to know God, your creator, and, and there really is no other relationship that's available for us to have except for a covenant relationship. If you have not entered into a covenant relationship with Christ Jesus and God, your creator, your heavenly father, if you are in that sense, from a national sense, an alien to the covenant, I do believe there are lessons here that will be a blessing to you, at least things for you to really consider. You see, there in, in um, what was it, 27, Deuteronomy chapter 27, when, the, when Moses was giving the explicit instructions, what was to take place, how, and so on and so forth, he has, he has um, explained to them even earlier than this that what God was really doing on that day, and, and I just want to, I'm reminded of um, Deuteronomy chapter 11, I want to go back to that for a moment because this is before he gets to chapter 27. There are about three discourses there in Deuteronomy. And we come to chapter 11, which is not the final discourse of Moses, but he's already speaking. He's already referring to what he's going to say ultimately. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day. And a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods, which ye have not known. And it shall come to pass when the Lord thy God hath brought thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, that thou shalt put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon, upon Mount Ebal. So already the Spirit was revealing to Moses what they should expect, what God was going to do in a very, this, this spectacular uh, object lesson. I'm not even sure if it's an object lesson. It was more than a lesson. It was, it was the day the nation was birthed in a sense, legally. And the people said amen. But God explained that what they were really doing is they were choosing a blessing over a cursing. Because when they said amen to the curses, they were simply saying and acknowledging that those curses would rightfully fall upon those who would refuse to be obedient and submissive to their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in that day, God, when they, I'm sure the, just the, the feeling of everybody being together, what else would you say? Of course you're going to say amen. Everybody's saying amen. The, 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 the emotion and the feeling that swept over the people, I can only imagine how tremendous it washed over them. And when they, would, when they would, with conviction, cry out, amen, amen, and again, amen. How many times they said amen that day? But they were choosing a blessing over cursing, my dear friend, outside of Jesus Christ. Have you thought about it in those terms that there is set before you a blessing and a curse, and you have a choice to make a blessing or a curse? You know, if you are thinking about that, I have to congratulate you because there are many people that I meet in just my day-to-day life who are not choosing between a blessing and a cursing. Their decision matrix looks a bit different than that. The values they populate their matrix with are not blessing and cursing, but fun, no fun. Will I have a good time or not have a good time? How many adults I speak to people my own age, and they seem to be so geared around having a good time. Whether something is fun or not fun seems to be a value. And it, I have to just say, it saddens my heart 
It's not that God does not have joy or give us joy in him. That's not the point. The point is many people do not think in terms of blessing and cursing today, but they think in terms of fun, not fun. Having a great time, not having a great time. What's in it for me? It's not worth it. My dear friend, if you ponder in your life in terms of blessing and cursing, I'm thankful. I really am because I think you might agree with me if we take some time to observe that so many people don't think in those terms. They think in terms of what I've just shared with you. But if we think in terms of blessing and cursing, I have set before you this day a blessing or a curse. And and you look at uh, chapter 27. We didn't have time to read chapter 28. There you can read at least 14 verses of blessings that would be theirs in in this covenant that was being ratified with them. And then about five times as many verses in chapter 28 devoted to cursings that would fall upon those who disobey the covenant. You see, loved ones, if you are thinking in terms, and, and you know, many people, they go through, um, they come into ad- adolescence, young adulthood, they want to have a great time, and some of this, I, I realize, has to do with maturity. Some get into the college scene, and, and there's a lot of things that happen on the college campus that, um, as the Bible says, it's a shame to speak of those things that are done to them in secret, though I'm thankful there are those who let their lights show shine, even in places like that. Nevertheless, As you come to a certain time in life, there are people at some point in time usually will look in the mirror and begin to think about their life in uh, in a more serious manner. What decisions should I make? What type of career should I have? Should I get married? Who should I get married to? And when people can put off making these decisions to when they are a little bit more mature, that's so much better for them. A blessing or a curse, they can think a little bit more, not only rashly, but hopefully more maturely and, and consider what would be the wisest thing for me to do? What's the better thing for me to do? Let's make good choices now as they get older. And if you are at that point, you know, the young brothers spoke last night about the valley of, they sang last night about the valley of decision. If you find yourself in a valley of decision and you have these types of weighty decisions to make, career, family, uh, marriage, and so on and so forth, relationships. We all want to have blessings in our relationships, in our families, in, in our career path, and, and whatever we find ourselves, our contribution we make to society, we want a blessing, not a curse. And so, loved ones, when we come to that uh, value decision and we are there evaluating our options and our choices, you know, that's certainly a lot better place to be than when we are just simply trying to figure out what's fun and what's not, what's a good time and what's not. So if we, when we graduate to blessing versus cursing and we, we see it set before us, we have choices to make. I'm thankful if you come to that point, but I want to tell you tonight that is the wrong valley to be in. That is not the decision you need to make, a blessing versus a cursing. There is a more, more profound decision to be made than simply a blessing versus a cursing. Who doesn't want a blessing in their life? Who wants a curse? Like nobody, I don't think, of the billions of people that walk this planet. No, my dear friend, the, the choice sets that is before you is more profound than that. I, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to uh, the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Sister Carolyn. Can I get those pronunciation correct? Uh, Galatians chapter 3, 
It says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. What was Paul saying when he wrote to the Galatian believers? Galatia is far away from Jerusalem. I doubt that anybody who was listening to the letter of Galatians had been to Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. And yet he said that Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. The message of the gospel delivered to the churches there in Galatia was so clear, was so vivid, was so true, was so plain and simple and to the point. It was as if Jesus Christ had been crucified in their midst. And my dear friend, he is the one who has been set before you and you need to choose him or not to choose him. You see, this goes far deeper than simply a blessing or a curse. What will you do with Jesus? Pilate asked that question in a few different ways to the people of Israel there in those fateful days in Jerusalem, hours before the crucifixion. Barabbas or Christ, the one you call Christ? He was, taunt, he was, he was goading them a bit. Jesus, who is called Christ, he knew that they absolutely rejected him as their Messiah. And yet they would, he would say that to them. And we know their response. We know how insistently they were that this enemy of the state, Barabbas, this man who had made, raised insurrection, caused murder and so forth, they chose him over Jesus. My dear friend, who do you choose? And I almost think that I shouldn't say it that way. Who will you choose? I, I think I should ask you, who are you choosing? Because you have been making choices all along in your life. And while you are here this evening, you, are, you have been making choices all along. And so really what we are asking you to do is to, to stop choosing the wrong thing and choose the Lord Jesus. I, I realize there's a paradox here. The paradox is that when you choose Jesus Christ, for all intents and purposes, to your eyes, it will look like you are choosing a curse. Can I repeat that? When you choose Jesus Christ, it will look to your eyes that you are choosing a cursed. Why? Jesus himself said, whoever seeks to save his life shall lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, what was the brother saying a, a few uh, nights ago when the rabbi would come and put his hand on the, the chosen and said, come follow me. If the Lord Jesus is putting his hand on your shoulder in this week and he says to you, come follow me, you need to understand what he means by that. What he means by that is you follow me, you deny yourself, you are no longer your own. And you, this is not just the typical rabbi-disciple arrangement that you follow me, eat where I eat, sleep where I sleep, walk in my, the dust of my footsteps. No, this is, goes a, a step beyond that. Because my discipleship includes a cross. My dear friend, we have to be open with you. Choosing Christ will look initially like choosing a curse. Did not the apostle say, all that will live godly shall suffer persecution? We must do much tribulation into the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Oh, I know, loved ones, this may seem such a negative message, but it's not mine. 
But my dear friend, understand that when you rise and follow the one who has put his hand on your shoulder and you follow him and you follow him to the cross and you follow him everywhere he goes and he takes you, you follow him. When he takes you into a valley, when he takes you to the mountaintop, when he takes you into places of isolation where you feel so alone. I talked with a loved one this week who had to express that there are times they really feel alone. There are times in our life where Jesus will lead us, my brother, my sister, to, times, to places where we are alone. My dear friend, when you follow Jesus, you are never alone. It only sometimes feels that way because he will never leave us or forsake us. And we learn to have through the eyes of faith a childlike faith, a simple faith, not a complicated one that we can do like he did and we can look beyond the cross and see the joy that is set before us as well. Yes, in this life, the Bible says he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so we should not be offended. My dear friend, we just want you to understand that as you stand in the valley of decision in this week and you have a choice to make because you have been choosing many things, but you have a new choice, a fresh choice that is available for you in this hour. Jesus Christ, who has been evidently set before you, crucified before your very eyes. Have you never read the gospel? Have you never heard a sermon preached about the crucifixion of Christ? I'm sure you have. And if you haven't, come let one of us know. We'll be happy to review it with you. And you see this. You see that Christ was crucified for you. If you do not give your life to him, you are turning your back on him. Those Levites looked at the Mount of Gerizim to pronounce a blessing. They put their back to Ebal, and then they did the opposite. And when you choose your own way, you put your back to Christ. Do you realize that? What does it mean to choose Christ? There, when we have chosen Christ... Yes, he first loved us. I fully agree with that scripture. We loved him because he first loved us. But he wants us to reciprocate that love. And when we follow him and we choose after him, he becomes our final choice. He becomes our final choice. Think with me for a moment. There at the cross of Golgotha, there were his enemies finally got what they wanted. And as they paraded back and forth before the, the foot of the cross, looking up to him and taunting him, mocking him, quoting scripture against him. And there were the women, some of the disciples afar off. I'm not sure how far off because at one point, I think it's in John's gospel, gospel, the Lord Jesus said, behold your son, behold your mother to Mary and to John. <coughs> They had chosen the Lord Jesus. Mary was experiencing what Simeon had long ago prophesied. A sword shall pierce thy own soul also. I believe the sword that was ripping her soul in those moments was even deeper than that of a parent losing a child. As grievous as that might be, she knew 
that this was the Christ of God. This was the Messiah. She had no other choice after she chose him. And that's why they stood there by the cross. Where were they supposed to go? They wanted to be with their rabbi. If he was to die on them, they had no place to go. Loved ones, when we choose Jesus Christ, he is the final choice of our life. Ultimately, oh, we have to think, our dear friends, as the people of Israel stood there in the valley, and as the blessings and curses were announced and the response were made in your own heart, in the closet of your life, not with grandeur, usually not with, um, on a loudspeaker, but even this evening, can I say this? Even this evening when you lie down to sleep, whichever dorm or room you're in, and the lights are out, and there is no one but you and your thoughts, you will make one more choice before you drift off to sleep. I hope it's the right one. Brothers and sisters, I think there are lessons for the church that we can draw out of, Joshua, out of Joshua's experience here, the people of Israel. I speak to you as my brothers and sisters, but I want to speak to you as the church of Jesus Christ this evening. What lessons can we take from Deuteronomy 27? It, it intrigued me as I looked at this chapter. It said here that uh, thou shalt build an altar of stones and shall not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones. Now, there was going to be time in the history of Israel where they were actually going to do a lot of uh, craftsmanship was going to be needed. They were going to build a tabernacle. They're going to build a temple. And the design of that, te- that temple and the, um, the architecture and, and the, the building of it, all of that, it would be fascinating even in today's terms, let alone the wealth of it and so forth. So was it elaborate? Was it incredibly special? Absolutely. But here in the beginning, we can go back to Exodus, I think it's chapter 20, and we find these specific instructions that God was giving Moses When you build me an altar, build it out of earth. Don't put any steps because when the priest walks up, his nakedness might be revealed. And remember what the Bible calls about nakedness and this is a a thought for modesty. What the Bible calls nakedness is not having not a stitch of clothing upon you but being indecently dressed. Bearing parts of your body that ought not to be is what the Bible calls nakedness. Not Adam and Eve's state only before they sinned. But the Bible was given explicit instructions that you would not use tools of iron, chisels and hammers to form in this uh, altar. And why is that? I, I just really, I don't know that I know all the answers to why that was, that they could not lift up a tool of iron. The Bible says you would pollute the altar if you had any manual craftsmanship in making the altar. And it just seems that when the altar was being made in such a plain way, the Bible says using whole stones. It was as if that God would not allow man to improve upon it. They had to accept it just as it is. I don't think the point or the objective was simply to be plain and simple, but I believe the point was that they were not going to add their own innovation. They were not going to add their own intelligence to worshiping God. 
but in great simplicity so that they would not have any distraction, they rolled these whole stones together and that was their altar. And as they approached the altar and they brought the animals and they shed the blood and they burned the animals, there was nothing to distract them in their worship of God. God knew. You make things a little fancy, you get, you get a, a, the appreciation in the eye of the beholder. And these things have their place later on, like we say, we see it in, in, in the temple and so forth. But evidently, it seems to me, in the beginning of Israel's worship, God wanted them not to use a tool of iron. Brothers and sisters, our worship of the Lord needs to be simple and unadorned. Not simple for the sake of simplicity. Not plain for the sake of plainness. But for the sake that we don't end up distracting ourselves as we approach a holy God. The simpler, the better that we realize that we are in the presence of God who breathes, who lives, who, who's our very breath. The next breath I'm going to take is in his hands and your, your breath as well. When God wants to close that hand of his, we are gone from this life. This is the God we serve. And we need to approach him in the appropriate and, and requisite reverence. And I believe it was something we can learn here in De- Deuteronomy tw- chapter 27 that we approach our God with simplicity of spirit. Perhaps you could say with a childlike spirit, with a childlike faith. Not distracted with the many trappings. Yes, there's a time and a place for many things, and, and please don't misunderstand me. But let's also please appreciate this detail of this scripture. But going beyond that, we read in the scripture about this day that the nation of Israel shouted amen, amen. The chorus went on, rang down through the years, never to be repeated again. Something for them to to tell from generation to generation what they had done that day as they surrounded Shechem. Brothers and sisters, Perhaps at times in life, we may feel that we're at the valley of Shechem in a mountain pass, a valley of decision. It may seem that way. I, a brother pointed out to me recently, he says, we have to be careful not to impose our midlife crises on the whole church. If there's something that's personal, let's keep it that way. But between us and the Lord, and not to assume with one another, whatever we as a church, though, have needs, And I think one thing that uh, I learned from Deuteronomy 27 is that though there is not a lot of detail about this event, yet it is in the scripture. God did have it recorded. The nation was going to read it again and again. And I'm sure they heard a lot about it word of mouth as well, not just what was written here in the fifth book of Moses. And there are things in our spiritual life that are not going to be repeated. In particular, when you and I enter the covenant of Jesus Christ, when through the blood and water we were brought into the body of Christ, when we of a free will and clear conscience said amen to what God said to us. I understand, we understand, brother and sister. We've entered the new covenant, not the same covenant that is here. But the germ of this, the, the essence of this, because it is God who is speaking, there are things there that, are, that, are, that we cannot overlook and gloss over. God wanted the commitment of the nation. 
And God was not going to repeat this thing again. There were certain feasts that he repeated year after year. Did he not? Passover, tabernacle, and so forth, so on and so forth. But this thing, what happened only one time. And there are times that you and I need to be refreshed in our faith and times like camp or, and, and I hope the, every Sunday at church and, and as often as we gather together, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is one of the reasons that our faith is refreshed to re-encourage and so on and so forth. But there is an event in your life and my life, brother and sister, that we can only look back at the day that we entered into the covenant of Christ Jesus. And just as the voices that rang through that valley needed to echo and settle into the hearts of the nation of Israel to such a degree that it would continue to echo through the generations and the years of time, so also in our walk of faith, it is important that we take times, we have quiet times, and think back that we might still listen and hear the words, the voices that echo over the years from a God who doesn't change. That day that he embraced us in his family. You know the irony of this? Joshua was an obedient servant. He did exactly what Moses told him to do. Now Moses did this thing twice, if you will, Mount Sinai and here in the plains of Moab, that side of Jordan. Now Jordan, and now Joshua, as a servant, is doing the very thing. And we go to the end of his book, Joshua, chapter 24. We will find that at the end of his life, when he's about 110 years of age, he gathers the people once again. Decades have gone by, from chapter number eight. He is now 110 years of age. And Joshua calls the tribes of Israel to Shechem, the very place where this thing, event had taken place. And he begins to recount for them their history. And, and, and I, I'm just, I, as I read through this, we can find the pronoun I repeated again and again and again as God is saying, I did this for you, I did this for you, I did this for you, nation of Israel, my nation. And as Joshua recounts their history for them, he says uh, in verse 14 of Joshua 24, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, notice, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And I think there are times, many times in our life that we will renew our faith and we will again with a great zeal and enthusiasm say, yes, I am committed to serve the Lord. But notice what Joshua says. Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. For he's a holy God, he's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. You cannot serve him. It's almost as if he was trying to squelch the revival. We might think that Joshua is approaching this the wrong way. He got a little bit too old and wasn't thinking so clearly. The people said such so resoundingly, we will serve, God forbid we go serve other gods. But Joshua was not, did not understand this. He understood this correctly. 
Joshua was, was trying to explain to them where the bar was set. God doesn't want half your heart. God doesn't want 85% of our heart, brothers and sisters. He wants what he always wanted. The only thing we can give, a heart. That's all we can give to him. He created it. He created us with volition, the ability to make rational choices and choices of morality. But that's all we can turn over to him. And that's all he yet wants to have. Brothers and sisters, can we hear the voices from the past? Can we remember what Jude said? Earnestly contending for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Not a multiple times. But once he has, given, once he has brought us into his family, once he has delivered the Christian faith to the church, it is ours to keep and ours to lose. Just like our dear friends, set before you and I is more than a blessing or a curse, dear loved ones. It is Christ Jesus himself. And when Paul said, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey Christ who has been set before you as a crucif crucified? Oh, loved ones, would it be too hard to say who has bewitched some of us? How can it be that we are so fervent to sing and express our desire to serve the Lord and watching movies filled with profanity and immorality? How is it possible that we can show ourselves to be zealous for God and waste countless hours online not building the kingdom? There are things we can do that can build the kingdom virtually online. But how is it that we waste and squander our time and yet we sing that we love him? God hears our words, but he listens to our hearts. We need to take time to think. We need quiet. We need to listen. Can we still hear those voices? For some of you, it was recent. For some of us, it was decades. But through the years, the word of God, the presence of God continues to come down. The everlasting gospel comes down from the hills. It reminds, us as set, it reminds us as set before us is Jesus himself. What will we do with him? That question of Pilate actually remains relevant for the church today. Oh, I know we love him. I love him. But loved ones, love is expressed from the heart, as Jesus said. He listens to our words, but he, he hears our words, but he listens to our hearts. I hope and I pray that as Joshua had to write these words again, and he could say with conviction, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He said that from his heart. He was an aged man. He knew what he was saying, and he meant it. I pray that in this week, brothers and sisters, we as a church will say that conviction, verbalize it, yes, but mean it in the heart. God is listening to our hearts.